Friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16 this morning. Uh, And if you're visiting with us and don't own a copy of the Bible, we've got Bibles that should be in arm's reach on the back of the pew or the seat in front of you. And that is our gift to you. We'd love for that to be yours, not just to use today, though it'll be really helpful to you to have it open in front of you as we walk through part of it. Uh, Our our desire is that you take it with you and, and that you continue to read based on what you're going to hear today and that you give us the chance to talk to you more about what what you find there. John chapter 16 today uh, is where we're going to focus and we're going to be finishing up that chapter verses 25 to 33. Real quick though, how many of you have heard of the miracle on ice? How many of you know what that is? This is not the result I was hoping for. I'm going to put it at like a third, which means I'm going to have to spend a couple minutes here telling you what I'm talking about. Miracle on Ice, one of the greatest, most iconic sports moments in history, not just U.S. history, but global history. Happened in 1980 in the Olympic contest for supremacy in hockey. It was a game between the United States and the Soviet Union. And where it was technically announced and predicted as a game, all anyone really expected was a slaughter. And for good reason. This, was, this, this match would, would pair up a, a team that was bred and trained for exactly this moment against a group of college kids from, I don't know, somewhere in Indiana or something in the Midwest. No offense to Indiana, you know, but like hockey's just not our thing in our country. And everybody knew it. The world knew it. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like trying to take an all-star team from the the high schools of, of, of Metro Nashville and putting them up against the Titans on a Sunday. You know how that would go. Everyone expects how that would go. That's what the expectations for this match were. That's who the Soviets were, and that's who the Americans were when it came to hockey. But this moment, everyone also knew, was also way bigger than sports. I mean, this was, this was in the middle of the Cold War, of this great and global showdown between these two great powers. And, and whatever, whatever the difference in nuclear arms at that point, there was no question that the U.S. was way behind in hockey absolutely unthinkable even even with the the stakes of this match and what it meant symbolically to those who were part of it it was still absolutely unthinkable that the united states could find a way to beat this super team but they kept advancing through the tournament and here they were with a chance to play them Uh, there's a movie about this miracle if you guys are looking for a you know a a further uh, view into this story not a great movie at least in my opinion. There's one thing that this movie got right. They let Kurt Russell, who was playing Herb Brooks, U.S. hockey coach at that iconic time, they let Kurt Russell deliver the locker room speech word for word exactly as Herb Brooks did back in 1980. This speech is not to be missed. Let me read it to you. This is what Herb Brooks and Kurt Russell said. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. 
Tonight, we stay with them. Tonight, we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players, every one of you, and you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. How about that? I don't even skate, and I think I could have been useful on the ice after a speech like that one that day. I mean, it's an incredible moment of an incredible story of resilience and grit and ultimately of triumph. The United States wins the game, by the way. They win. And I, as we've been walking slowly, slowly through Jesus' final words to his disciples on the night that he would be arrested and then later killed, more than once, I've compared what's happening here to a locker room speech. In some ways, the setting is really, really similar. I mean, you've got, you've got the disciples who are a little bit like a team. And they've spent years listening to Jesus, who was a little bit like a coach, trying to follow what he's teaching them. And now, here they are in, this, in these closed quarters, but facing an outside world that they're about to be sent out into with a big job to do. And in this moment of truth, here, here Jesus is boiling down what he's taught them over the years. He's he's crystallizing for them what he wants them to know now. He's trying to prepare them to to face what's coming next as he leaves them. I mean, that's what's made this section so precious to consider. It's like under all of these pressures, this diamond is formed that gives us a crystal clear and brilliant and beautiful view into who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. That's what it's meant for. And this week we reach the very last words of his speech. These are the final words that he wants ringing in the ears of his followers as they would go on to watch him arrested and crucified and ultimately rise again. Now, if if this setting is that similar to a pregame locker room speech, then, then what strikes me most about it, about what Jesus has to say, is how vastly different it is from the content of Herb Brooks's speech. I mean, you might expect something like what Brooks said to Team USA. You might expect Jesus to say something like, you know, boys, great moments are born of great opportunity, and that's what you have here tonight. That's what you've earned here tonight. You've stuck with me three whole years while everyone else fell away. For three years, you've been right by my side watching and learning and growing through thick and thin. And tonight, you go out into the world and you overcome. You shut them down because you can. Their time is over. This is your time. Go out there and take it. He could have said something like that. And he absolutely does encourage them. That's what he means to do. Take heart. That's the final command of this speech. It's the only command in what we're looking at today. Take heart. That's what he wants for them. That's what he wants for you. But his reason, the reason you ought to take heart, has absolutely nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. In this text, he shows us they should take heart not because of anything they are about to do, 
but because of everything he's about to do. Friends, the key, the key to Christianity, the key to all of it, is in the difference between Herb Brooks' speech to Team USA and Jesus' final words to his disciples. I want to show you that today. Two reasons to take heart. The command for us today is to take heart. That's your application for the whole sermon today. Take heart. Two reasons why. I'll show you from the text. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I begin reading in in, in chapter 16, verse 25, and carry to the end of the chapter. Jesus, speaking to his friends, says this. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you'll ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered him, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Take heart. That's the command. And in these few verses, we get two reasons to follow it. Number one, take heart in the love of the Father. Take heart in the love of the Father. The great gift of the first section of our text this morning, the one that runs from 25 to 29, or excuse me, to 28, the great gift comes in 26 and 27. That's the heart of it. That's the key. But to open that gift, to enjoy its riches and beauty, you got to pull back the wrapping paper on either side. You got to understand what's going on in verse 25 and what's going on in verse 28. Jesus begins this section and ends this section with a before and an after. In verse 25, he's talking about a before in which he spoke in figures of speech and an after in which he'll speak plainly. In verse 28, he's talking about a before in which he came into the world and an after in which he'll go out of the world and back to the Father. And then in the middle, he says, right in the center, Now they won't come through him, but will come directly to the Father, knowing the Father himself loves you. Those are the basic pieces of this section. How do we put them together? Two big things you got to understand to see what Jesus wants us to see here. 
You need to understand what Jesus means by speaking plainly. And you need to understand what Jesus will plainly show them. What does he mean when he says he'll speak plainly? And what is it that he will plainly show to them? Let me show you each of these. First, what Jesus means by speaking plainly. I I think the major clue to notice here is, is his reference to the hour that is coming. That's in verse 25. And his going to the Father in verse 28. This is code language. He's been using it already up to this point. And it always refers to his death and then his resurrection and his return to the Father. When he talks about his hour, he means the thing he came here for. And that's how he's used it up to this point through John's gospel. The hinge, in other words, between what wasn't clear, those figures of speech, and what will now be seen plainly is Jesus dying, rising again, and returning to the Father. That's what's about to happen. That's what will change everything. So why will his death and his resurrection enable him to speak more plainly with his disciples? How is that clarifying for his message to them. I think, guys, it's because before they could actually see for themselves that he died and rose again, before that was something they witnessed, they just couldn't understand what he came into the world to do in the first place. He's been trying to teach them that all along, but they just haven't been able to get it. It's not been clear. They didn't have a context for a savior who would have to die. They were looking for one who'd ride in on a white horse with, a, with some chain mail and a sharp sword, you know, and drive out the Romans. That's what they expected. So when he's talked about him laying down his life for them, they've been scratching their heads. I mean, in fact, the first half of John's gospel is mostly framed around Jesus making big, important statements about himself, but using metaphors, figures of speech to get the point across because they still couldn't quite connect with it. Jesus has said, John 6, I'm the bread of life. You eat me, eat my flesh, you drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. It won't be like in the, in the old days when your fathers in the wilderness ate manna and still ended up dying. You'll feed on me and you'll live forever. That's what Jesus said. I'm the bread of life. And they're like, huh? Eat your flesh? And then Jesus told them that he was the good shepherd, John chapter 10. A good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I mean, the shepherd they had a category for. The Lord was their shepherd. They knew that. But, but you say you lay down your life on your own accord? Like you mean, that doesn't make sense. They didn't get it. Chapter 11, he told them he was the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. But up to this point, as clear as everything may be to us with hindsight, it sounded like crazy talk to them. It would only really become clear after Jesus' hour had come. Once his hour had come, once he'd actually died, once he was back again saying, here, touch my scars, then he could say plainly to them what he'd said in figures of speech already. Then they would know what he meant all along. That's what he means by speaking plainly. What is it then? that he wants to show them plainly. Look back to the text with me. This is key. In this text, what he tells them he will tell them plainly about is not actually himself, but the Father. Look at verse 25. 
The hour is coming when I'll die, when I'll rise, when you'll see me again. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Not simply the fact that he came to die and to rise again, but what that coming and dying and rising shows us about the Father. What is it they want, that he wants them to know about the Father? What is it that they could only know after this hour had come? And they could see who Jesus really has been all along. Friends, that, that's the gift. That's verses 26 and 27. In that day, after my hour, when I've died before you and risen before you and now tell you what it was all about, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I don't say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. In that day, when I can speak plainly, you'll know the Father loves you. And that'll change everything about how you relate to him. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. He'd already told them that the Father loves them. In John 3.16, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. He's already said that. He's already told them. Now he's about to show them. He'll show them when they see the Father through the cross. In other words, when you see Jesus dying and rising, he's saying to them, you see the Father's love on display. What the cross shows you plainly that you couldn't have seen otherwise is that the Father wants you to know him, to depend on him, and to love him. The Father himself loves you so much that he sent his only son to go through that for you. There's a big difference between knowing and, and knowing between knowing something at the level of your cognitive ability to process the information and knowing it deeply at your core through experience. I mean, we've used board books over the years to teach our kids about the seasons of the year, you know? Like flip it over and there's a big black and white one with the snowman that says winter. You flip it over and there's like a beach and some sunglasses and it says summer. Spring one's got the, the tulip, you know, and lots of pastel colors. And on the, the, the fall page, is going to have what? Like a, maybe an orange page over here and a white one over here with a red maple leaf in the middle of it. Fall. So they know that in the fall, things change. Leaves take on different colors. But, you know, uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, whenever fall break was, we took a couple days and we went over to the, to the mountains and we drove the Blue Ridge Parkway at peak fall color. I mean, more than we'd ever seen before. And we take this trip every year. It was just stunning. Like, as far as the eye could see, a forest of nothing but color, like a carpet just laid out over those hills. There's something you can learn from a board book, true facts about the changing colors of leaves. And then there's something you learn by driving the Blue Ridge Parkway with half of the southeastern United States during fall break. You see it, you know it. And what Jesus is saying is after you've seen me die, after you've seen what it cost the Father to send me, then you will know that the Father himself loves you. 
The, the love of God was not a new concept for them. The, the Psalms are full of promises about the steadfast love of the Lord. The prophets are full of promises that that steadfast love will overcome even their sin against him in Israel. The, 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 the idea was out there already. But now they could see it plainly. Look to the cross and you'll see the Father. Can you see, friends, why this gift was so precious for this moment, for this little band of followers? I mean, this little band is about to face a hostile world that'll hate them, just like it hated Jesus. He's promised them that. In some ways, all of Jesus' followers all through time have lived their lives in a kind of exile, loyal to Jesus and his kingdom in a world that's ruled by other kings and other kingdoms. And compared to the powers that be, these little followers, all of us, compared to the powers that be, Jesus' band of followers has always been small and insignificant. How do you live in a world like this? Where trouble of one sort or another is just built in every day, guaranteed. How How do you face that? How would they? You have to know. You have to know that the Father himself loves you and you can come to him with anything think of the implications of what he's saying right here think about who he's talking about when he talks of this father he he's talking to them about the god of isaiah chapter 40 i I won't take the time to read it but let me just rattle off some of what they knew about god this is this is the one who measures the water of the of the earth in the hollow of his hand The one who weighs the mountains on a scale as if he could just flick them up on there and see what they weigh. The one one who doesn't need anybody to counsel him. He never needs any advice from anywhere because he knows everything, past and present and future. He's the one before whom the nations are like a drop from a bucket or a speck of dust on a scale. In other words, nothing. The princes, Isaiah 40 says, they're nothing. This is the one who spread out the heavens like a tent. That's who he is. And Jesus is saying, this father, lucky for you, I've got his ear. I'm pretty influential up there in that throne room where it counts. You play your cards right and I'll see if I can't get him to pay attention to your life. See if I can't siphon off some of that power and goodness for your agenda. No. Jesus doesn't even offer to be their man on the inside. He says, yeah, you ask in my name, but you come to him. You come to him. This God is your father, and he himself loves you. That's what they needed to hear facing what they're about to face. That's what you need to hear, friends. That's the gift we need this morning. How do we receive it? And how do we enjoy it? If you're here this morning considering Christianity, wondering what it means to follow Jesus, who he is, and and why Christians turn to him in the first place, the first thing you need to know is that this gift you can only receive through Jesus. This relationship of, of dependence and love with the Father, it only comes through Jesus, his son. Yeah, you get to go straight to the father and you get to know that the father himself loves you. But, but look at what Jesus says next. 
The Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. It's those who love Jesus and believe in him that have this relationship of love with the Father. See, see most, most religions out there want to connect people to something that's greater than themselves. That's usually baked in rea- part of, of what it's all for. Some higher power underneath everything that is. And the Christian view of, of this higher power is that the main barrier between us and God, the only God that is, is not our ignorance. It's not what we don't know. It's not actually our lack of discipline, our inability to follow through on what we think is important. The main barrier between us and God is actually our betrayal of him. That we have actively turned against him. That we've broken the trust that we were made for. That we've put ourselves first as if we know best or as if we are our own best shot at the life that we want. We've treated him, in other words, as if he isn't worth very much. Maybe even as if he isn't there at all. And that broken relationship, that barrier between us, it only gets crossed through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came to pay the penalty that that sin requires. He came so that that penalty could be completely absorbed and the way opened to the relationship you were made for. And that door, because of Jesus, is open today. You can walk right through it, if you will, all the way to the God who made you and who loves you. But it's only open through Jesus. You got to come through him. Now, how do we enjoy this gift if we've received it? What does it look like for us to relate to the Father as if he himself loves us? That's a big question. It's like a rest of your life kind of question to unpack. It's all through the scriptures. I just want to show you one thing that's right here in Jesus' text. We enjoy this gift when we do actually, regularly, freely come to the Father in prayer. The ultimate foundation for your prayer life, friends, is the cross of Jesus. When you look at the cross, what I want you to see, what Jesus wants you to see, is the Father's invitation to you to come to him. And and I think you can see your prayer life as a really clear and powerful indicator of how well you've seen what Jesus plainly showed us. That the Father himself loves you. When I'm not sure somebody loves me, maybe that's putting it dramatically, when I'm just not sure they're okay with me, when I'm not sure they really want me around, which, believe it or not, is a real thing. There are at least a couple people out there who who, who wouldn't be glad to see me show up at their party. When, When I'm not sure where I stand with somebody, you know, my tendency is to pull back a little bit. You know, don't poke that bear. Don't make it worse. Maybe, maybe, maybe look for ways to avoid reminders that things aren't good here. I hold back. When I'm confident about where I stand with somebody, when I'm confident they love me, they actually would like to have me around, you know, I don't think twice about going to them. I don't think twice about spending time with them. 
I, I don't expect that they'll, they'll only say yes out of obligation, that really they'll be annoyed. I don't think twice about asking them for their help because I assume that I, I matter to them for whatever reason and they're willing. Friends, your prayer life, what you bring to God and when and how and how often, it, it shows something about where you think you stand with him. It shows how well you understand that he himself loves you and that at great cost, at unimaginable cost to himself, he has opened the way for you to come straight to him. We live now in the hour Jesus was talking about when we could see plainly what it was all about. And, and, and it's from that plain and clear view that Paul writes in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely, graciously give us everything we need? First reason to take heart this morning is the love of the Father. He himself loves you if you're in Christ. The second reason to take heart this morning is the victory of the Son. Point number one, take heart in the love of the Father. Point number two, take heart in the victory of the Son. This is verses 29 to 33. In this little section, Jesus is rounding off those final instructions to his followers with a second reason that they should be confident, a second reason they should take heart. Verse 33, I've said these things so that you can take heart. Take heart because I have overcome the world. Our confidence rests on the victory of the Son, and that confidence is hard won. If you want to enjoy that kind of confidence, first thing that's got to go is your self-confidence. Look at how Jesus gets them to his punchline. His punchline is take heart, I've overcome. But look where he starts with them in verse 29. The disciples respond to what Jesus has just told them with this burst of enthusiasm. You know, up to this point in this long conversation, they've mostly just been asking these bewildered questions about what he's telling them. They're like kind of scratching their heads and looking out of the side of their eyes and, and thinking, what, huh? They've been hanging their heads over what they have understood. The notion that he'd be leaving them has made them discouraged. And now all of a sudden, it's like they've caught a spark. Ah, now you're speaking plainly. Now you're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Now we get it. They're wanting to be that hockey team. Ready to charge out there and take the ice. Okay, finally, we're ready. We can do this. This is our time. We're going to go out there and take it. That's what I think is going on in verse 29. And whomp. Jesus squashes that confidence like a grape. Look at verse 31. Do you now believe? Do you? The whole hour is coming. Indeed, it's come. It's here. When you'll be scattered. Each to his own home. And you'll leave me alone. Why would he tell them this? At this moment of truth, he's got them eating out of his hand. The team is ready. They're finally hungry. They're finally starting to believe in themselves. 
You're expecting him as a good coach to get down on his hands and knees and kind of blow on these embers and see if he can't turn them into flames. This is your time. You trained for this. You earned this. Great moments come from great opportunities. Go out there and take it. That's what I want him to say. But he says just the opposite. You're not ready. You don't have what it takes. This is not your victory to win. You couldn't do that. In fact, when things get worse, you're going to scatter to the winds. Not only won't you be able to overcome, you won't even stick together and take your loss like men, like a team. You'll run away, every man for himself, back to his own home to hunker down and lock the doors and bar the windows and wait for it to all be over. That's what's going to happen in the hour that's already come. Ouch! Does that seem cruel to you? Maybe say that to them? Why would he respond like this? Well, Jesus tells us why he responds like this in verse 33. Look down with me. I have said these things to you. I have squashed your newfound confidence like a grape. So that in me you may have peace. I crushed your hopes and dreams so that you may have peace. I put you in your place so that you may have peace. Jesus responded the way he did right here because of what he knows about us because of what he knows about the world and because of what he knows about himself. What he knows about us. He knows that our self-confidence, their self-confidence, it is destructive and it is relentless. It's like an invasive grass. It's always there waiting to pop up. Why do I have invasive grass on my mind? Many of you know, we're, uh, you're probably tired of hearing me talk about this mess that we've got in our backyard, but the mess is almost done, and one of the final pieces to fixing this mess will be lots of dirt aimed in the right way to get water out of our backyard, and then sod put on top of it to protect that grating from being washed away by the rain. Well, I've been kind of picky lately about how that sod is going to go in because what's back there now is a mess of Weeds and invasive, basically unkillable grass. You got to be super careful how you dispose of what's already there before you put the new stuff in because you will fight it as long as your life lasts if you don't. Because its roots go deep and it's tolerant of all conditions, this kind of grass. Rain or shine, it lives on. Heat or cold, it just carries on. Even has the ability to go dormant for a while, just so that you think that you've beaten it, waiting for the right moment to creep back up and tempt you to pull it out one by one by one. Our self-confidence is like that. The only way to get rid of it is to crush it, to kill it, to uproot it, to give it no quarter, to don't let it rear its head for a second. That's what Jesus knows about us. He kills this self-confidence to heal them. He's not going to let this happen to his friends. He knows they still don't fully get it. They just think they understand what he's saying. They haven't seen yet what they have to see to understand it plainly. He hasn't yet died. They've already missed his point. And if they go into what's about to happen 
trusting themselves, they won't last. Because he loves them and wants them to have peace, he squashes this self-confidence that's based only in what they think they know, what they think they understand. He wants them focused on what he's doing, on his victory. Friends, when when God prunes you of your self-reliance, it's gonna hurt. But it is always from his kindness. It is always his leading you down the path to peace because there is no peace that rests on your stability. When he wounds you, it's to heal you. Jesus squashes them like this because of what he knows about us, but also because of what he knows about the world. The reason he's so against self-confidence here is tied to what he knows about the world. That's verse 33 again. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you're gonna have tribulation. That's coming for you. Like a few hours from now, they would know what he's talking about. See, their, their confidence is tied to what they think they understand about him as an awesome teacher, sent from God, like a prophet. You know, someone who, who, who just knows everything and doesn't even need to be asked questions because he's got this uncanny ability to know what you're already wondering and to, and to address it before you've asked him to. He's an awesome teacher, no question. And that's what their confidence is based on. Oh, we get it. We saw how good a teacher you were and we followed you instead of all those other teachers. But in just a moment, he'll be dead. And dead teachers don't do anybody any good. In fact, dead teachers could get their followers killed. That's why they're going to go on and scatter for a time. They don't understand that this death is part of the plan. And they don't understand that this trouble Jesus gets from the world is a trouble he's promised they'll get one day. Jesus knows this. And he knows if they go into that trouble with their own confidence intact, they won't make it through. They have to know that they can't trust themselves. We have to know that too. Kids, sometimes when you're learning about Jesus in church or in your home, you can get real excited about what you know about him. You know, what what kind of questions you can answer when you're asked about it in Sunday school or what kind of verses you can recite when you've been working to memorize them. And that's, that's really good. We want you to know about Jesus. And that starts with knowing about Jesus, uh, the, the true things that you could answer when you're asked about it. But, but he, sometimes, sometimes it can kind of feel like you're, you're good at Jesus, like you're good at math or good at history or good at ELA. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. It's not about what you know about Jesus. It's about who you trust. If Jesus is part of how you show what you know, or a part of how you please your parents or your teachers, or part of how you fit in with your church friends, you know, here's what's going to happen, guys. Sooner or later, sooner or later, you won't want to be with Jesus anymore. Because what Jesus says here is that in the world, out there, you'll have trouble. Sooner or later, for some people that might be real important to you, some people that you love and want to impress, Jesus will actually make you look worse to them, not better to them. And you won't want to be with Jesus then if it's just about what you know. That's why we're, that's why we're teaching you now, why I'm telling you now, what Jesus is telling you here, that, that the most important thing 
is not just to know about him, but to trust him. What you need to know is not not true facts about him, but what he's done for you. What you need to know is what he's done for you, not what you can do for him. And that leads me to the the last reason Jesus is is treating them this way. The last reason he's squashing their self-confidence. It's all based on what he knows about himself. He knows that his victory is already as good as won. He can speak of his death and resurrection as if all they would accomplish was already a done deal. He says, I have overcome the world. There's his last statement to his followers before he goes out to die. The last thing he leaves ringing in their ears. Take heart, guys. I've already overcome the world. He's about to be hung on a cross. He'll be stripped naked in front of the world. He'll be shamed at a level we can't even imagine. He will experience agony that we will never, ever experience. And he will do it all on purpose with confidence. And his, his statement over all of it is, I got this. I got this. I've overcome the world. He discourages them in a way so that he can encourage them. Because the only comfort that will survive what they're about to watch and then what they'll go through comes from what Jesus does for them. He says, I said these things so that in me, not in you, not in what you know, not in what you can control, in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The only peace that could ever last is a peace that's in him. Only in him, not in themselves, not in ourselves, can we face up to the tribulation of the world. Some of the most unshakable images that I've seen from the war in Ukraine have been those images of families that are that are on the run as families trying to get to the border. Those images where, where moms and kids were saying goodbye to dads. Y'all seen these? As they board buses and trains. I read this week that two-thirds of Ukrainian children are now relocated from their homes. Two-thirds of all the kids in the whole country are on the run. And they'll live, no telling how long, in camps, some of them, in limbo. And I I know that the effects of this trauma are going to play out for years, maybe the rest of their lives in some cases. I know that. But still, you know, when I've looked at these images, you know what has struck me? What's jumped out at me in so many of them has been the resilient smiles, the the joy and playfulness of, of many of the youngest kids the ones who remained with their moms. They're away from their homes. Their country is under attack. Their future is completely unsure. And yet at some level, at least these youngest kids, they, they were at peace. Their peace is in their moms. In the world, in Ukraine, they have tribulation. They have war in their mothers, at least for time. They have peace. This this is the kind of peace that we can have in Christ. 
in his victory, not in our prospects, in his victory, not in our circumstances. Can can you see the gift that he's giving us in these final words to his friends? Take heart, he says. Why? Because you were born for this. No, I was born for this. Take heart, he says. Why? This is your time. No, my hour has come. This is my time. Take heart, he says. Why should we go out there and take it? No, I have overcome the world. Our confidence rests completely, not on ourselves, but on the love of the Father and the victory of the Son. Let's pray that the Lord will reinforce that confidence even right now among us. Father, we thank you for your word that does its work. We pray that it would work on us right now so that the confidence Jesus meant to communicate to his followers on that terrible night would be ours right now facing what we're facing. We pray that you would give us this gift by your spirit through your word in Jesus' name, amen.